The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. David Mackay, the editor at MiningMax.com with us this evening, talking about more than 4,000 miners likely to lose their jobs at Sibanya Stillwater, this time in the Platinum Group Metals sector, including some of the old uh, Lonman mines. We all remember the Marikana killings, of course. Peter Atot-Montalto in London. Talking about uh, Transnet taking the begging bowl to government. They've confirmed the amount of money they want you to pay to reduce their debt. Um, We'll catch up on markets, which today have not been spectacular. Uh, We will look at Mr. Beast. If you've got teenage kids, you'll be very familiar with Mr. Beast, who's a fabulous YouTuber, but he is taking the mickey out of his fans, sending absolute junk to our shelves. And I wonder if any of you have been caught out by it. Uh, We'll catch up with uh, Simpiwe Moyo, organizational behavior. Behavior specialist, are you guilty of a workplace deviant behavior? What even is a workplace deviant behavior? I mean, a lot of lots of people get up to all kinds of mischief at work. And what do we mean by workplace deviance? Why AIG is dropping funeral cover for South Africans at the end of January. It's concerning because of the waiting times. Its customers are not going to have enough time to find an alternative. Uh, and then Samantha Pockroy, who is the co- uh, co- she is the co-founder. There we go. Those are the words at Sonari Capital, a brand new private equity group in South Africa with a a very particular mission. So that is what is on our agenda this evening. We look forward to your calls at a three oh seven oh two or Cape Town O two one four four six O five six seven. You can tweet us at Bruce Business or send us a WhatsApp on O seven two seven oh two one seven oh two. Give us a shout. Tell us what's on your mind. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on seven oh two. Seven oh two South Africa, of course, has got the world's richest deposits of platinum group metals, and therefore we've got some of the world's biggest producers of platinum group metals, one of which is Sibanya Stillwater. It's warned today more than 4,000 miners are going to be affected with a Section 189 retrenchment process. It's doing that at four of its shafts, saying it's just too expensive to keep mining with platinum group metals as depressed as they are, plus higher rand prices for fuel, for water, and, of course, unreliable electricity supply. David Mackay, the editor at MiningMax.com on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. Uh, Sabanya Stillwater has been warning for a long time about the sustainability of its gold mining of its gold mines in South Africa, David. Is the platinum news a bit of a shock or was this something you were expecting? Uh, evening, Bruce. Um, that, no, I think this was uh, guided to some extent. Um, at the interim stage uh, in August, um, the company announced that it would um, it would cut its uh, production guidance and and these proposed um, this proposed restructuring and um, meets those that lower production guidance. So there's no sudden drop off in PGMs as on what's already in the market. Not a surprise from that point of view. I think the surprising factor about PGMs though is the actual market itself. And everyone expected there to be a softening in prices because they really scaled you know unknown highs about 18 months ago. But it's just the depth and the severity of the correction in the market. And I think that is the shock aspect of this. But then all platinum producers should be in the same boat, shouldn't they? This won't just then be isolated to Sibanya Stillwater, or does it have particular issues that are pertinent to it and it only? Yeah, not, I mean, not all reserves and resources are, are equal. Um, in the case of Sibanya Stillwater, that's... Um, 
it didn't start these mines, it bought them. So they, they pre-existed and they were, some of them, heavily depleted. So one of the shafts, uh, a mine called Kroondal, had been mining for many, many years and it, that's just been mined out. In fact, two of the shafts affected in the announcement today or uh, mentioned in the announcement are actually closing. So the economic reserves have gone and the other two are a function of, uh, of the, the cost issues and the market that you alluded to earlier. Uh, yeah, and these cost issues are significant, aren't they? I mean, they're being felt throughout the mining industry, but particularly erratic electricity supply. And we've seen mining companies lead the charge in terms of bringing in solar PV and other methods of you know, generating their own electricity to try and get some stability. Because without stability, you can't send mine workers down underground because you won't be able to get them back up again. Um, it's, it's that yeah. basic, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, uh, costly, uh, there's, a, there's a lack of productivity. I think you know that about our mining sector. But interestingly, it's that what, what you referred to earlier, the ability of our, generally our mining industry across the board, its ability to respond to the electricity crisis hasn't had the, the dent on supply that the market expected. So supply has been quite robust. Um, it's the demand side that, that's fallen off so steeply. And it's, uh, it's very much... I mean, I, I think the average basket price for PGMs is off somewhere between 25 to 35% over the last 12 months. That's, that's a lot for any industry uh, to absorb. It is. And I, is it below the sort of levels it was at just before that huge spike up, that insane post-COVID surge? Are we seeing prices below where they were sort of trending before that? They're at those levels. Um, it's just the um, it's just the way that the market responds to the shock. So in the case yeah. of rhodium, uh, you know, it's, it's a small um, PGM, but it became a very important one because the price went from four thousand to thirty thousand dollars an ounce, and then fell back to four thousand within within a year. That shock to the system makes the automakers really uncertain. It was trying to like read the market. You know, how much material do I need? Oh, I've got too much. I'm not going to buy any, so on and so forth, you know. So it's just the, the way the cycle has moved. It's, it's become extremely steep and shortened. Yeah, and that's terrible for everybody in the industry, of course, particularly the people who have to dig the stuff out of the ground because they're the most vulnerable in this particular case. Some of the mines that we're talking about are actually some of the old Lonman mines at the Maracana massacre of, what is it, nearly 12 years ago now. And and again, it's just, I suppose, a, a reminder of the, the vulnerability of these mines. The global economic cycle goes into negative territory. The, you get booms and busts. And ultimately, sitting at the southern tip of Africa, we are price takers not price makers of the commodities we produce and you have to suck it up sometimes. Yeah, and, it, and obviously there's a human angle to this. Um, so potentially uh, 4,100 people affected. That won't be the, re- the retrenchment numbers. It'll be probably okay. much less than that. Um, but you've got to wonder about the human element and the impact on that Rustenburg region. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not a well-run municipality. I know we're quite happy about the census at the moment. But the Auditor General's uh, report on fitness of municipalities, Rustenburg, for all its industrialization, is a very poorly run uh, and impoverished uh, municipality. No, not well run at all. Um, stress is also building, of course, across the mining sector. We're seeing fear of strikes and fear of cutbacks also in the gold sector. Sibani has warned us for a while now that its existing gold mines, the ones that led to its creation through the spinning out of the old gold fields mines, just aren't sustainable. And despite the very solid rand price of gold, I mean, you know, trouble must be looming there as well. 
Same thing. I mean, it's all, all to do with the way, um, you know, the reserves pan out, that those are very mature shafts. And, and when the miners said about them, they say, OK, we're going to have a cut-off price on which, you know, this resource can be economically mined um, and we'll mine to that, to that price. But, you know, once the reserves go and it becomes too, you've got to cut the, you've got to cut the resource. And I think that's what's happened with some of those mines. Uh, Clear, for example, has been going for, ah, gee, probably around uh, 25, 30 years. They're very old. And, uh, you know, uh, the time has come for, for those, those particular mines, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, I mean, and as as far as an investment in Sabanya Stillwater is concerned, I mean, these yeah. guys are refocusing their business. They're globalizing their yeah. business very, very seriously. The focus really is going to be is moving away from gold to platinum group metals now, but more towards battery minerals. This is the the big strategic drive, and it one's it's one that looks timeliest. Yeah, and look for Sabanya as a whole. It's been a tough year. I mean, I think the stock is down about fifty percent or so in the last twelve months. They've had a really tough time. I think they they are transitioning as a business into into the battery metals. Um, their gold resources are very mature, uh, very volatile. We've seen you know that they hugely um, you know sort of. Um, vulnerable to the PGM price. It's a major part of their business. And, and at the moment, the business, I think it lost money. I think there was cash out at the interim stage. At the current spot prices, there won't be a dividend. Um, and that is a major blow to, to the company. And they've got quite a high capex bill as they move into these other metals at the moment. So really a period of a big transition for, for Sabania and tough times. David Mackay, thank you. Editor at MiningMax.com. David Mackay, uh, deep insight this evening into the issues facing uh, Sibania Stillwater and, of course, the people who work for it. The good news there that, you know, although 4,095 people will be affected, doesn't mean 4,095 retrenchments. That is catastrophic for... I mean, the multiplier effect of the, the number of people that individual miners support can be anything from four to ten, I suppose. And so it's a, it's a huge impact on livelihoods. Uh, but again, these companies have got to be sustainable to continue to exist to support everybody else who works for them. In a moment, we'll catch up with uh, Peter Atod Montalto. Peter Atod Montalto is Managing Director at Crutham. Uh, he's on the line to us this evening. And we saw finally some details coming out, Peter. We know that Transnet was going to go with a begging bowl to National Treasury ahead of the medium-term budget policy statement. They've gone with that begging bowl and it's 61 billion rands worth of begging bowl. Not all of it's debt, but a big chunk of it. Get back to Peter Attard Montalto in just a moment. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. That's right, Peter Attard Montalto once again. That 61 billion rand number out of Transnet. It's not all of the debt, but it's a big chunk of it, Peter. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, good to talk to you. I'm here now. Um, so, I mean, I think <laughs> this was, it's not a surprise. This is not a surprise. This has been coming down the road for a very, very long time. Now, the market is just waking up to this. I think there was a lot of surprise in the market today with some of these announcements and some of these press stories, uh, because let's not forget that Transnet managed to get a dollar bond away uh, in March even, um, thanks to, I think, uh, a, a quite fantastical tale that was spun by the previous management. But uh, yeah, it's been breaching loan covenants with banks and requiring condemnation of those for some time. Uh, it has very little cash. Uh, and it's suffering from a big, big volumes problem, fundamentally, which is getting worse. Uh, and it'll take some time for very positive structural reforms and turnaround 
tests in place. And that's where this uh, request ultimately comes from. And it's ultimately going to have to uh, uh, come through in some form uh, to provide some additional support. Let's not forget we're seeing you know, 78 billion to ESCOM this year and 66 billion next year to ESCOM. So it'll be adding on top of already a pretty hefty um, SOE bailout pipeline as it is. Absolutely. You talk about volumes problems coming through for Transnet, and that's nobody else's fault but its own over a decade of mismanagement. I mean, we've known this for a long time, yet the primary shareholder, which is government, of course, the only shareholder, which is government, has continued throwing good management after bad, unfortunately. So, well, I mean, there are a multiplicity. Indeed, there are a multiplicity of different reasons, um, you know, of which the management problem, I think, was only ultimately a symptom or a catalyst of, of wider uh, problems that were there, including sabotage, uh, including uh, the fact that uh, there hasn't been fundamental regulatory and structural reform put in place uh, until now uh, around the way that Transnet has operated uh, and overseen. But you know, fundamentally, I think the problem here is that Transnet does not function as it is meant to do, and that's why we've seen this massive uh, dip in volume. Remember, South Africa, we talked about it slightly earlier in the year, uh, entirely missed out on the global commodities boom uh, and the country has in terms of what it could have otherwise got from coal and other exports uh, after the start of the Ukraine war because of the capacity limitations uh, that Transnet uh, basically has and has put on the economy. The, the real worry here is a contagion problem, Peter. I mean, we're, it's, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sort of drug of last resort or the bank of last resort, the bank of mom and dad in this particular case is government. And if the bank of mom and dad in this particular case is government, it's the bank of me and you, um, which is the bank of the taxpayer. Um, and if this contagion, if we see ESCOM and Transnet going for bailouts and they're successful, there are 800 other state-owned enterprises in various states of disarray, which may very well be tempted to do the same thing. Ultimately, this is all government debt. It's all my debt and the debt of the listener. Well, there's a massive moral hazard problem here, which is that, in effect, Treasury uh, has an implicit guarantee, 100% implicit guarantee uh, against all SOEs, and the markets uh, have this sense, and it's not entirely uh, incorrect. So it's really about the times of conditionality that Treasury can put in place through bailouts. They put in very stringent conditionality against the ESCOM bailout, which is very closely linked to reform. It's going to be exactly the same on Transnet. Uh, Remember, Transnet is even odder than ESCOM in many ways. It has quasi-regulatory functions. Uh, For instance, it was doing things like third-party rail access, which it shouldn't have been doing. It's been undertaken independently by the regulator. Uh, It had deep, deep problems in terms of conflicts between the rail operations and the infrastructure manager that's now been sorted by spinning out or about to be spinning out the infrastructure manager. Uh, So all these things have to be fixed. And Treasury, I think, very much will be looking uh, to impose basically paying a pound of flesh uh, through these deep uh, conditionalities and reforms uh, in exchange for money. But I think we have to push back, though, against the notion that DA often pushes this, that somehow there is a choice to do these bailouts. You could not do these bailouts. If you didn't do these, they would come back to bite you 10 times worse uh, later on in terms of defaults and massive accelerations uh, of investors calling their money straight away. So uh, as painful as it is, is this is actually a least uh, stressful, less, less cost, least cost uh, route of doing these things.
as painful as it might be, thank you very much to Peter Atod Montalto. No, the moment you default, you said you trigger a whole range of consequences throughout the debt markets. It would be catastrophic, absolutely. Chris Stewart, listening to that. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91. He joins us regularly on a on a Wednesday night. Please will you decipher for me in, I don't know, ones and zeros, dots and dashes, life healthcare statement. Because life healthcare tells us today, Chris Stewart, that it's doing brilliantly. Uh, patients are coming in. They're being operated on. They, they, they are, are, are running out of the hospital in great numbers and great health. Everything is fantastic. Margins in some places are coming under pressure. Then they set the accountants loose on us and the market's really not happy with them. Yes, good evening, Bruce. Um, yeah, I think margins in South Africa are coming under pressure is the key uh, point that you raised. The revenue performance in the core South African hospitals business was fine. Uh, paid patient days were up. Occupancy levels were improving. However, I think margin in SA disappointed somewhat. Uh, and that was probably the biggest disappointment in the number. The, uh, the AMG business has been sold. Uh, that capital will by and large be returned to shareholders in the form of a special dividend. Uh, so the performance of that business is now less important, having been classified as a discontinued operation. So, I mean, it was really the fact that the South African business may have uh, improved revenue and improved their operational, uh, you know, occupancy type uh, uh, measures. The actual margin at which they did that, I think, disappointed the market somewhat. And as a result of that, the earnings guidance, certainly the midpoint of that earnings guidance, probably coming up 5 to 10% light of what the market was looking for. At one stage, your share price down about 8% at the end of the day, 5% lower. Considerably healthier was Byte Technology. It saw a nice bounce in its uh, arrangements today. And then Sabanya Stillwater disappointing the market as well with its warning on Platinum Group Metals. We chatted to David Mackay about the reasons for it. But it just is showing, I think, just how much tougher mining is becoming in South Africa with all of its multiple constraints. Yeah, it, indeed it is. Uh, we're talking up to 4,000 uh, retrenchments taking place at Sabanya Stillwater. Uh, what is, I think, sort of interesting here is, you know, we've seen the platinum miners under a huge amount of pressure this year. Most of the stocks are 50 and 60% year to date. That's as a result of, you know, a platinum price that year to date's down 16% palladium down 37%, rhodium down 65%. So the platinum basket has been under huge pressure. Uh, due to, you know, slowdown fears in global growth, amongst other factors. Uh, and, and, you know, as a response, platinum miners are going to have to start cutting more marginal operations. What's possibly less good news for the balance of the sector is that many of these uh, shafts, which, uh, you know, where the retrenchments are taking place, were either already in wind down or were operating you know, at significantly below capacity and as a result of that are, you know, resulting in these retrenchments. The bad news, I guess, is that this is going to result in very little supply coming off the market. So if you're looking at Sabanya Stillwater's announcement thinking, well, that's the catalyst we need in order to get the metals prices going because this is a big supply side response uh, in, in, in the global scheme of things, it's, it's not. Uh, it's not at all, in fact, uh, very little uh, metal actually being taken off the market uh, either in the immediate or near term. 
Then there's a really strange little story. There's a, a small bank in the UK that 99.999% of our audience would never have heard of. It's called Aldermore. Now, Aldermore is owned by First Rand. Aldermore was about to buy a bank in the UK called the Cooperative Bank, which comes out of one of the supermarket groups of 100 years ago. Um, and I see today that Aldermore Bank, which was meant to put in this offer for Cooperative Bank, didn't do so. And it's all because, of course, of the big management change at first round. Or at least that's one take that I've seen of it. Yeah, I, I, I think one should exercise a little bit of caution in reading uh, the reports. The original report... Uh, I think Sky News indicated that Aldermore uh, were going to put in a bid. First Rand Group never uh, confirmed ah, or denied okay. that. However, I think, you know, Aldermore is uh, one of the larger small banks in the United Kingdom, if that makes any sense, the so-called challenger banks. And, uh, you know, if another of the so-called challenger banks come up for sale, I think it would be remiss of them not at least to have a look. Uh, so First Rand's Aldermore subsidiary in the UK, which constitutes somewhere around 8 to 10% of First Rand group earnings, uh, did indeed probably have a look at Cooperative Bank. Um, they uh, never made an official statement that they were going to put in a bid. I have no doubt that they didn't put in a bid. And uh, now today, Sky News reporting that Aldermore have indeed withdrawn uh, from that process and that transaction uh, is not going to take place. The one thing we do know about the first round group, they've shown it uh, over the years, is there is tremendous capital discipline within the group. And if this wasn't an asset that they could acquire at an acceptable price to generate acceptable returns to their shareholders, they would very clearly have walked away. Uh, they have very clearly walked away, if indeed they'd ever walked there in the first place. <laughs> but I think to associate that with the yeah. change in executive at first round is, is, is completely wrong. Uh, I don't think the fact that Andrew Pullinger's handing uh, Alan, Alan. <laughs> Alan Pullinger he is said, handing he sent his brother in on Mary Mondays and Fridays. His brother Andrew on Mondays and Fridays, and Alan to Tuesdays <laughs> to Thursdays. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the fact that Alan's handing over the baton to Mary Villacasi has got absolutely nothing to do uh, with the uh, fact that they're walking away from Cooperative Bank. It'll be much more to do with the fact that they either didn't like what they saw, or even if they did like what they saw, they couldn't get it at a price that would generate the appropriate return. So I think that's that story there, Bruce. Chris Stewart, thank you very much indeed. Portfolio Manager at 91. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. So a fabulous statistic, um, somebody posted, uh, reposted a vitality tweet um, and it was just wonderful showing how heart rates across South Africa peaked into dangerous territory, we're told, uh, at about 22.54 on Saturday night. What was 22.54 on Saturday night? Oh yes, there was the semi-finals of the World Cup. And so Vitality, because they rec record all of their members' pulse rates and things when they're wearing their devices, is taking action because it's dangerous, you see. So we'll talk to Dinesh Governor from Vitality. A bit of fun after Eyewitness News at 7 o'clock. On your next Money Show, we've got the co-founder of Galileo Capital, personal financial advisor Warren Ingram, as to whether or not it's best to invest in fixed deposits or the stock market, considering just how uncertain things are. Uh, Entrepreneur Sankoba Vuba will be in the hot seat, dishing out tips for your small business. We'll go through clicks, annual results with Chief Executive Bettina Engelbrecht and also help you find the biggest money stories of the day next time on the money show bruce whitfield on the money show 6 to 8 p.m
One of the few interesting emails through my inbox today was headlined, Independent Hospitals in South Africa Face Challenges of High Inflation Affordability as They Struggle to Serve Communities. I guess that could be a moniker that could be applied for almost any business in South Africa at the moment. We certainly saw it out of Sabanya Stillwater today, warning that 4,095 of its workers at four shafts in Rustenburg will be affected by cost-cutting as a result of the huge increase in the cost of operating these mines. Uh, two of the shafts, of course, coming to their end of life anyway. But the uh, the uh, independent hospital study comes out of EY, and Heather Orton is the strategy and innovation leader at EY South Africa. Heather, when you talk about independent hospitals, I don't think you're talking about the big groups, although the big groups are complaining. We saw the life healthcare results out today, and costs are running amok in, in that sector as well. But you're talking about smaller independent hospitals in smaller places, which are taking the brunt of the recessionary conditions that they have to endure, I think. Correct, yes. So, thank you, Bruce. Um, I'm I'm definitely uh, talking about those hospitals that are sort of co-located and embedded in some of the local communities and some of the settlements. So, it's it's those that I would sort of say are those real front-of-line hospitals. Those are the ones that I think are struggling. What are the big issues? What are they facing? Well, not only, I think inflation is the biggest um, biggest issue they're facing, and that's really around their debt finance. So um, they are seeing patient affordability kind of increase, although the communities that they serve have never really been able to afford uh, you know, a higher level of care. And so it's really being able to provide a really good service um, while still making money and paying back their debt finance. So it's definitely inflation, I would say, is the biggest one that's hitting them. And how are these hospitals funded? I don't assume there's a, a huge medical aid market in these markets. Uh, well, they, they they do subscribe to some of the schemes, um, depending on their patient mix, but you're right. I mean, a lot of it is through government-funded um, patient care um, and then um, privately funded by the individuals themselves, either in, in cash or through gas cover insurances. And, I mean, we are seeing new products entering the market that cater for that that population um but that's that's how they're covering their their costs but so where's it all going wrong then is it purely the inflationary aspect do they need to be pushing up the cost of cover because that may be something that ultimately breaks the system completely i think it's a really interesting issue which is why i sort of wanted to write about it um because i think that's certainly a key driver but there's also the fact that as independent hospitals they don't benefit from economies of scale so the equipment that they buy in and the consumables that they buy in so the medication um, and things like that they they often pay a bit of a premium for that because they don't have that buy in bulk and save kind of um, opportunities. Um, the other thing is where they're located. Often uh, the services and the patients that they get, um, you know, are, and, and even attracting the doctors, it, it's slightly more challenging because they're not in a, in a city or in a local hub. Um, they, they're very much serving a, a very localized community. And so in order to get the patient throughput, um, to make them viable, it, they have to get creative with how, how they sort of attract those, those patients. Does this make it inevitable that they'll be subsumed by the larger hospital groups over time? The larger hospital groups have got the scale, they've got the buying power. They may not find the particular markets in which these hospitals are operating particularly attractive, but they may very well be able to make them work from a scale perspective. 
I mean, I hope not, because what I really enjoyed about the independent hospitals that we were working with is the level of care that they provide. And, and I'm not saying the big hospitals don't provide a level of care, but, but there's a real deep sense of personalization um, and, you know, really working with the communities. And, and actually, you know, going back to my days when I was growing up, where your doctor and your, your hospital kind of takes you from the moment you're born to the moment that, you know, you get to the grave. And, and I think that's where those independent hospitals are really special. Um, and if a, if a large, you know, hospital buys them, I think they should try and conserve that, you know, that personalization piece because it's a real differentiator for those little hospitals. Are they also feeling the pressure potentially from the, the, the risk or the threat or the opportunity um, of NHI? I mean, NHI has gone a little bit quiet at the moment, but we know it's a deep government project that they want to implement, regardless of the evidence um, that it's uh, something that is doomed to failure. I wonder whether or not these hospitals are going to feel the brunt of that. I think the, I mean, the, I think the intention of the NHI is there. I think it's how it's going to be practically implemented that still needs to be worked through. And I know there's a lot of plans around piloting schemes and understanding how it's going to impact. Um, we did look at it, but I think it's a bit too early to tell exactly what the kind of um, implications are going to be on those smaller hospitals. There's much bigger headwinds I think they're facing at the moment. Um, some of them we spoke to see it as a blessing. Some of them see it as a curse. So if it's not NHI and if it's not pri- um, it's sort of money from big brothers and sisters, how are these guys going to survive into the future without government money? And government budgets are already severely stretched, as we know, across almost every aspect of, of uh, public operations. So what we are seeing is some of the hospitals getting really, as I say, sort of creative with how they're doing it and building those sort of lasting relationships. I think they often work in communities um, that potentially don't engage with uh, medical practitioners or or hospitals on a regular basis. And so um, I do see them kind of looking at changing the way that they do their care mix, so the kind of um, procedures that they provide, but also really specialising in core procedures like paediatrics, so like, you know, making sure that um, births and prenatal care and all of that is working properly. Uh, And then the other thing is looking for creative ways of finance. So, you know, although government could be potentially the core push of finance, uh, there's lots, again, there's lots of philanthropic finance that they can look at. Um, And I suppose another one thing that I was really interested about is is these businesses are obviously uh, often black run. You know, they kind of tick all the boxes. They meet the requirements of the local people. Um, And so they are very attractive to sort of international investors as well. Thank you to uh, Heather Orton this evening. Heather is uh, at EY. She is the partner in charge of strategy and innovation for EY South Africa. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I don't know about your kids, but my kids have got YouTube heroes. And one of the loveliest and sweetest and most creative and most innovative is a guy called Mr. Beast. But I wonder if he's not burning his fans. He's encouraging them to buy junk. Uh, I think he was involved in the marketing of that dreadful drink, what's it called, Prime, that people were paying hundreds of rand for at one stage. And now he's um, encouraging his followers to buy chocolate. And Jan Vermeulen has now taken one for the team. He is the editor at My Broadband. Because I think you're also impressed and captivated by the, the this huge following that Mr. Beast has generated amongst predominantly sort of... Queens and teens around the world, Jan. Good evening. 
Good evening. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mr. Beast is uh, is also like an audience whisperer. The man is just a viral video machine. In fact, viral content machine. So he understands the the, the online audience, at least the anglophone um, online audience, better than anyone. And like anybody who is in the internet. Uh, you know, in the business of, of uh, producing content for the internet, and it doesn't matter what, you know, if it's educational content, news content, or his particular brand of entertainment content, there's uh, something to be learned from him, uh, despite his uh, relatively young age compared to other folks in the business. Um, but, oh, and one more thing to correct, he is not mm. behind time. That is Okay, beg your pardon. I beg yeah, your yeah, pardon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, well, it smelt like it. Um, so the did I just say that? Uh, James Stephen Donaldson <laughs> is his name. You say he's a youngster, but I suppose maybe you've got to be a youngster to be cracking this market because he's really got a relatability and he's really got an ability to connect with his audience in a way that I've seen very few other YouTubers do because he's fun. He blows things up. He makes things happen. Um, and he just does stuff, frankly, that, you know, kids would love to do themselves. Yes, and I mean he 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 uh, keeps it fresh, right? So and he and he does, uh, as you say, off the wall things. So for example, um, not uh, what he's become most famous for is literally taking a video sponsor's money and pumping that whole sponsorship into the production of the video. So if, if he gets a million dollar sponsorship, then you know uh, he uh, um, then he goes to Antarctica with that money, or. Uh, you know, uh, in the beginning when he would get a $10,000 sponsorship, he would literally give that money uh, to one homeless person. It's like, here, here's $10,000. Um, and, and that would generate tremendous interest. Um, and, and it's also kind of illustrative of the, of the kind of guy that he is, um, you know, with just giving the money, you know, in, in the case of just giving the money away or like they would go to a, a, an animal shelter and like launch a massive marketing campaign for the animal shelter to ensure that every single dog gets adopted, stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, and then uh, stuff that doesn't cost a lot of money at all, but is a tremendous amount of effort, like reading a dictionary back to front <laughs> in an hours long live stream. It was ridiculous. So, so yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that he's done that, that's catapulted into play. It's like Top Gear with a soul. Um, you know, highly captivating content, but just you know, with warm and warm and fuzzy, nice things about it. Here's, here's the problem, though, Jan. As you become more and more successful, as you start drawing the huge audiences, and he's got something like 200 million subscribers, it's unbelievable how successful he's been. You then start getting tempted. I suppose, by other commercial ventures. And the one where you've now tasted Feastables chocolate slabs, um, they've been introduced to South Africa, have they? Um, and I wonder what the, the taste test told you. Yeah, uh, so um, MassMart brought, brought them in and our office was abuzz with, oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's all this stuff, you know, this discussion online about how much worse American chocolates are than anywhere else. Oh, but they are. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and there's, honestly, there's apparently like some chemical that goes in American chocolates that, that makes them taste off to us. But Feastables, firstly, is made in Peru. Um, and secondly, um, yeah, they're, they're quite all right. I, I, I don't think that they're worth 50 rand for 60 grams all right. Uh, I mean, you can buy <laughs> lint at that price. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, uh, they're a darker chocolate. So even though they, they say milk chocolate on the wrapper, into a South African tongue, 
I think you'll taste it and you'll go, no, this is dark chocolate. This isn't milk chocolate. So that if, if I have one complaint besides the price, that's, that's it. But otherwise, no, it's, it's, it's a tasty enough chocolate. But for the money, I think I'd swing either Lint or Toblerone. No, but exactly. I mean, and Mr. Beast is at the forefront of this, of course, because he's punting this stuff in, in his videos. Yes. And so obviously it's going to be, you know, pricing parity is different in every market. And so this is now MassMart's first big splash with a YouTuber brand. And so, um, you know, we'll, I guess that they're trying to gauge to see how much they could sell this stuff for. And so for now, it's kind of like a Christmas novelty type gift, right, at, at this kind of price. Um, if you, but South African consumers are incredibly price sensitive, my prediction. And, and I, I think that once the novelty dies down, so will sales and the price will have to normalize. Like this, this chocolate does, does not compete toe-to-toe against Toblerone and Lint. It needs to be priced down to, to compete with the regular Cadbury's Beaker Nestle chocolates. But the thing is, the, the pow- and this shows the power of Mr. Beast because he will convince kids that they should have it. Kids will then convince and convince and convince and convince and convince and convince and convince, and convince <laughs> until parents capitulate. Um, and, and then, you know, that, that's the sell done. And then after a month or two, then you normalize it. But yeah, I think what it, uh, the real point of this thing is just showing the enormous impact and the power that these guys have. And I just love the, the South African connections. We've chatted to Dan Mace, uh, who's the filmmaker. Um, yeah. when, when Dan and the team went down to Antarctica, he's a South African produced filmmaker. Film, uh, produce somebody I suppose he has produced a South African born filmmaker and there's another South African in there as well um, as uh, a guy called Darren Margolius who runs uh, Beast Philanthropy also born yeah. in South Africa so there, there is definitely a connection between us and the, the Beast franchise indeed and his uh, girlfriend is uh, South African Sia Boyson they met um, apparently while he was down in South Africa waiting to oh. go on the Antarctica trip. So, and yeah, the, uh, Darren, the story behind, behind his connection there is precisely this animal shelter story I was telling earlier. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, how, many, how many South Africans have crossed this path and have ended up being, um, uh, you know, integrated pretty high up in the, the Mr. Beast empire. Uh, so with Dan, Mace and Darren, uh, you know, essentially heading up um, beast philanthropy and doing immense work there. I, I, it's not on the main Mr. Beast channel, and I can definitely encourage folks to just go and look at what they're doing. Um, it's, it's, they're doing a tremendous amount of good uh, with the power uh, that Mr. Beast has acquired over the years. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that, Jan van Meerlen, editor at My Broadband, taking one for the team, t- eating uh, nice enough, but expensive chocolate. You can get better. And we trust the, the taste buds of the team at My Broadband. Um, yeah, and the South African connections at Mr. Beast. If you don't know Mr. Beast, uh, just, and you've got some time on your hands, just go on to YouTube and you'll be, you, your heart will warm to the guy. He really has got a lovely way about him. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by the APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Sipiwa Moyo is standing by for us with Business Unusual tonight. But before that, I just thought this was a little bit of fun. And I question whether or not this is data-driven 
or whether it's just a little bit of clever marketing or a piece of um, sort of, I don't know what it is. But watching people's heart rates. Now, I've been hearing stories in the Vitality Center at Discovery that they are able to see all kinds of activities that you engage in in real time. During daytime, they can see whether you're walking or running or sitting at your desk. And then they send you those little reminders to move on the devices that you wear. And if you get up into any personal nocturnal activities while wearing your watch, they can tell when you're up to that stuff as well. Uh, Dinesh Governor, Chief Executive at Discovery Vitality, you noticed heart rates rising around the country at 22 hours 54 on Saturday night. That seems to coincide with people not necessarily doing physical activity, but having a certain physiological reaction uh, to a shared interest. Yeah, Bruce, it was such a brilliant night and thanks for having me on. So let me start by saying Dr. Masima Mabunda, my head of clinical wellness, thinks that raised heart rate when the Springboks beat, uh, beat England on, uh, on Saturday night is definitely not healthy. That, that what what, was, what was the heart rate? Where, 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 did, where did heart rates mine, go up to? So listen, mine spiked to way over 100. And, and we, actually, we actually, so we don't get everyone's heart rates unless they're, unless they're doing workouts. We do not okay. get the heart rate. But I got back into the office on, uh, on Monday. You know, I'm in the office five days a week at least. And my whole team was in. And we're talking about well, the rugby because that's what everyone's talking about. And there's just a different vibe. And I asked people, what was your heart rate on Saturday night? And a few people checked and everyone's heart rates spiked. We saw like proper spikes. So we said, you know what? Let's have a bit of fun here with our members. This, South Africa feels different this week. It feels like there's less load shedding. There's less corrupt. Everything feels a bit better this week. Let's give everyone, let's give away 60 million vitality points. Let's give 100 points to everyone who's on active rewards just because there was here's points. So we called them back the bucket points. And we thought this is a great way to just tell everyone we're celebrating with you. We're feeling the vibes. And, uh, and uh, we recognize that it's not healthy heart rate. But know that we think about heart rate, we think about your health, and we think about sport and, and, the, and, the, and the wellness of our entire country. But, but on a more serious note, I mean, it does, I suppose, amplify the message of stress is bad for you. And that was a very, there were some very stressful moments, especially at about 5 to 11 on Saturday night. And if your heart rate is elevated to that extent by what, and I know it's not just a game of rugby, but if you're in your daily life or getting your heart rate accelerated to that extent through stress, you, you need to calm down. Definitely need to calm down, Bruce, and that's why we <laughs> we recommend a good night's sleep after something like that. I'm glad it was a late game. We we, we encourage the 10,000 steps a day. We encourage light workouts, uh, high heart rate workouts, moderate workouts. We we encourage we encourage people to also have fun, and I think that's what it was about. Have fun, feel great as a South African, and uh, and we thought we'd have a bit of fun with all of our members around it. We got great response. People were loving it. Called the exactly. about it. We uh, we thought that everyone across South Africa, from one side of South Africa, now the undercount, everyone is happy. <laughs> don't don't please please don't talk about sides. Thank you very much, Chief Executive. Does he so naughty? Uh, Discovery Vitality Chief Executive Dinesh Governor. The Money Show. Business unusual. I was just talking to a friend of mine today who's in the marketing world saying, wouldn't it be nice if we were playing Ireland and Guinness could talk about, you know, the white side and the black side of a pint of Guinness, for example, ahead of that game. It's a pity we're not playing the Irish. Uh, workplace deviant behaviors, CPW Moyo. Uh, CPW is an organizational behavior specialist and CPW is with us for business unusual tonight. What is a workplace deviant behavior? It sounds dark, dangerous and fairly unpleasant. It sounds very unpleasant, Bruce, and thanks so much for having me. I think if you're a leader, you've experienced 
um, a workplace where people start spreading rumors, they undermine colleagues, they engage in a bit of theft and fraud, exhibit aggression or even, you know, passive aggression. I think all those behaviors that really deviate from the accepted norms and rules in within the organizations are really called workplace deviant behaviors. And and interestingly, people study uh, these behaviors, what causes them and, and so on. Uh, but uh, I mean, are things like uh, I don't know more minor infractions, a bit of absenteeism, a bit of lateness, uh, I don't know work to rule, or what's it called slow? What's it? Um, there, there was a movement about a year ago where people were walk, were sort of like they decided my job pays me from nine to five. I will work those hours and not a moment longer or a moment earlier, and only do yes. what's required. Um, that sort of rebellion against extra effort at work. Um, uh, you know that that seems like you know. Not great behavior, but to call it deviant is quite strong. Sabotage, theft, workplace bullying and all that. I would put that in the deviant category or dangerous category. What do we class? How broad is the spread of deviance when it comes to workplace behavior, organizational behavior? Yeah, there's a quite a spread. And it's, 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 if you, if you think about, um, a, a continuum, Bruce, and maybe on the, on, on the other extreme, you have deviant behaviors that are quite, uh, dangerous, like the one you are mentioning. When we think about bullying, you think about theft and so on. And on on the other extreme, you have what we call organizational citizenship behavior. So these will be, you know, when people show the discretionary effort. CPU, the sorry, discretionary um, you action. are unfortunately getting a digital dropout. I'm not too sure why. Let's just try CPU in a different line if we can, uh, because it's frustrating for me. It's frustrating for you. It'd be frustrating for CPU not to have his wonderful points heard to the very best of their abilities. So my producers are frantically going to get hold of people on a different line because so often you go into a workplace and you can just feel that it's not liquor. Um, and some, and it comes down to culture and organizations. You know, I, I could name them, but then they'd be cross and we won't do that. Um, and maybe it was just me on a day being hypersensitive. But you go into some off spaces and you can just feel that the buzz isn't lacquer, that the, the place is not happy, that it's been worn down by, um, by people who are miserable in the workspace. And, um, oh, he was sounding fine, said Sehor. But we're calling him now, now which hopefully is quicker than now because now it can take an awfully long time. Now now is more 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 rushed than now now. Um certainly there was digital fallout where I am sitting this evening techo. And that's really what matters. Uh, because if I can't hear him then I assume that nobody else can clearly as well. But we're getting CPU on a more uh, traditional mechanism which is a phone line. Um sorry you were just talking about how these people behave in the workplace. And I, I I wonder CP where it's a chicken and egg question I suppose if people are responding to the environment that they're in or people are hiring badly or something is sort of intrinsically wrong within the system if people are ex- exhibiting these deviant behaviors. I think most of the time Bruce it is uh, research tells us that it's mostly a form of protest. It's a form of retaliation by employees who maybe sense a lack of support uh, from their organization. Maybe they believe that there's some injustices. Uh, and, and if you remember, the power dynamics within an organization is that leaders actually have so much power within an organization. And definitely, when most of the time employees feel like their voice is not heard, they've tried so many things, uh, they use these deviant behaviors as a form of protest, as a form of some form of retaliation for them to get their word across. And so generally speaking, by the time people 
experience exhibit these extreme behaviors like bullying, they would have tried so many things and they feel unheard. So generally speaking, it, it is some form of taking some level of power and, and, and showing that there is, uh, they can at least withdraw their labor, uh, uh, which is, uh, I guess, a slight uh, deviant behavior, but to the extreme where it can get to bullying and so on. So is it a leadership problem or is it a staffing problem? I mean, because so often you, you look and you listen to some people talking about their workplace and you would swear that they were prisoners. You would swear that they had never worked anywhere else, that this was the worst place on earth they have ever worked. And you hear it all the time in organizations where people who don't have too much real world experience come into a workplace and kind of think it's going to be like the Googleplex. And nowhere is on earth like the Googleplex other than the Googleplex. And I promise you the Googleplex is a much tougher environment than the one that you work in because Absolutely. in return for all of those benefits, they've got very high standards. And sometimes companies, I think, are frustrated. Uh, and, and managers are frustrated with the, the talent that they're expected to manage because so often um, people are hired and they don't come up to don't come up to scratch and so you get managers under stress because they're forced to deliver on targets they're not getting the targets so they lean on their staff their staff then push back it becomes a really difficult conversation to have doesn't it it becomes such a difficult conversation to have bruce and and that's why it is an interaction of a different factor so there's definitely organizational factors like poor leadership, uh, lack of organizational justice and, and high level of stress and so on. But there are also uh, individual factors where people have suddenly expected a little bit too much from their jobs. They, they expected that it, the job itself um, is going to be this cruise and people have watched uh, some other environments where uh, maybe the, the, the job was fun and they think it's always fun, but there is a level of expectation that people need to have that accountability. So individual accountability is very important. There are those individual factors. There are group factors as well where you find that there's a presence of well, deviant peers, there's a lack of trust among team members. So it can emanate from any of those levels. But what, one of the most important things to do is that it is you cannot ignore such behaviors. So if you see those small deviant behaviors, you have to nip them in the bud because ignoring them does not help. Uh, and having a proper conversations where you know that these things are going to be addressed and not just some hoo-ha team building, but a proper real conversations about tea, conflict and so on. <laughs> hoo-ha team building. My favorite description of team building ever. Thank you, Spiro Hoo-ha team building. Organizational behavior specialist, Sipiwe Moyo this evening. We'll get to Wendy Nola in just a moment. She's got a really important story for us, and that is a story around funeral cover. Funeral cover is an absolutely essential insurance for most families in South Africa. Funerals are massively expensive. It's the make or break cost for many households. Um, I personally believe that South Africans, as South Africans, we spend far too much on funerals. I'd much rather see us spending more on the living than the dead, but you know, um, that, that's the way we're wired. Um, and funeral cover becomes a really crucial part of household budgeting, particularly in vulnerable households where, unfortunately, some families are just more prone to, depending on where you live and the sorts of jobs that you do, more prone to, to tragic accidents and, and, and other dreadful events that affect their lives. And today, Wendy tells me that AIG South Africa, which is the local division of the U.S. Uh, uh, insurance company, American International Group, told its policyholders that they will be discontinuing funeral policies from midnight on the 21st of January. Now, that is their 
prerogative. Of course, they don't have to keep providing insurance. But um, they then give the wonderful, we value our insurance relationship over many years. Thank you for choosing AIG Life, but now you're on your own. I added the last bit. Here's the problem with this, though, Wendy. If I decide that you look a little peaky one day, and I think to myself, hold on a second, I can make a fast buck if Wendy Nola doesn't come back to work tomorrow and we have to go to her memorial. That would be very sad and wrong. Um, so I'm going to take Thank out, you. I'm going to take out a funeral policy on her. Then I can capitalize by next week and get some cash in on her life. It's not that easy, is it? Because there's a big waiting time required precisely to prevent that sort of activity uh, from happening in the market. And AIG South Africa looks like it may be leaving its loyal policyholders a little bit high and dry in this particular matter. Indeed, Bruce. Hello. So, yeah, it's just over three months uh, notice. I must admit, while I was preparing for this earlier today, I suddenly thought, oh, there's been no mention of the fact that this is uh, less than six months. Um, AIG does say in its letter, which is full of emotive words like um, we regret and unfortunate and all this sort of thing. We have no choice. Uh, yeah, uh, it is. it was totally their decision to make. But they, they do urge their clients that they are now going to drop at the end of July, uh, end of, sorry, end of um, January, midnight, January 31st is the cutoff point. And they do say that, um, you know, you must please uh, find alternative cover. So most uh, funeral policies have a six-month waiting period. This came up in a case we covered uh, a month or two ago, Bruce. Do you remember? Yeah. Poor chap died at 68 one day before the end of that six-month waiting period. Um, and uh, I got involved and said to Capitech, uh, Capitech were the bank that, that facilitated it. It was Centric Life. And I said, can you have some pity on this poor family, the son? And they did. They paid out 20,000 rand as ex gratia. Sorry to di- digress, no, no. Bruce, but can you believe it? I haven't told you this. I, soon after that, I had another case. Can you believe it? Same insurer, also through Capitech. A mother approached me. Her son, who... Her young three-year-old son died also in August, one day before the end of the waiting period. I just, I mean, what are the chances? And yeah. I, I went back and I said, I know I've just asked you for this, but please. And, and to their credit, they paid as well. They paid that policy, um, even though it was one day short. Anyway, so these waiting periods are, are, are a thing there to yeah. obviously to stop what you've just said and also to stop um, – a family taking out a policy on on when someone's already on their on their deathbed or the person themselves. Um, so it's six months generally um, for natural deaths, and it's twelve months for suicide, for obvious reasons. Anyway, I did find in doing some further searching that um, F and B as a, a funeral policy about the waiting period, it says. There is a waiting period of six months for natural deaths, 12 months for suicide. If you have already served these waiting periods with a licensed insurer in South Africa, you won't have to serve them again with F&B uh-huh. when you switch. So 
that might be helpful. And obviously, I would suggest that those people who have got these unfortunate letters start looking around sooner rather than later. Because and discuss, you can, you can have the, as many policies as you want. Absolutely. But here's the problem. If you've got a policy with AIG and that policy terminates at a fixed time, midnight on the 31st of January, you've got three months. So if you want to, if you do sign up with another insurer that has a six-month waiting period, you've then got to pay double policies for the next three months. Yes. Then one expires yes. and then you've still got a three-month waiting period before the other one actually would pay out. And it just does seem a little bit rough. It does seem a little bit rough. I haven't been to the insurer because when I, I started getting these complaints, Bruce, and I looked at Hello Pete and I saw a few more, and did a bit of a search to see if there had been much co- coverage. There was one news story, News 24, which said um, that AIG re- uh, declined to comment. So they put out the statement. Yeah. They've put out the statement saying, you know, after careful consideration and strategic evaluation, no, no, no. we've taken this decision. Um, if you remember the Constantia insurance case, that was awful, uh, where they dropped their cover. They'd been giving people um, really almost too good to be true premiums um, for death and accidents and whatever. And then people just couldn't find the same coverage elsewhere. And I heard from... John, who's a 66-year-old pensioner affected by this AIG move, he's been paying 300, uh, sorry, 263 rand for the past five years every month, never missed a premium, he said. And he said, the sad thing is now that being over 64, the funeral policy premiums will be extremely expensive for a quarter of the cover of the AIG policy. Despicable behavior by AIG. And I think, look, as you say, they have there within their rights to do it, but it does have very unfortunate consequences, especially for the older uh, policyholders who now are really, you know, you've got the waiting period issue and hopefully there will be uh, those uh, funeral cover um, insurers who will not impose a waiting period. But, um, yeah, they, they, uh, for them, they're invariably going to be paying well, as John says, more for less. No, but, and, and that's, I mean, and that is awful. And especially when you look at it, I mean, John's paid 15,000 rand in funeral claim, a funeral, uh, uh, in, in funeral. Um, you well, did the maths. I did. Yes. He's paid about 15,000 rand in contributions to this policy, which fortunately he's never had to claim on. But that's 15,000 rand that could have been put to a funeral had he not paid it. Um, and so he's been a, been a loyal customer and therefore feels hard done by. I, I wonder whether the insurance industry is going to respond to this with empathy uh, and do what FNB advertises that it does and says, okay, look, let's come over. Um, you know, you've, you've proven yourself to, if you've got a good track record and you've proven yourself to be a good payer over time, yes, the money's not come to us, but we can see that you are not a fly-by-night claimant. This is not your intention, is not to claim on the policy. We will pick up from where you've been left off or where you've been dropped off. Yeah, let's hope so. And the other issue which is, always comes through, and it's particularly in this case, People have a, a lot of people um, have a, a perception that, uh, certainly in the case uh, where your insurer cancels, that, okay, well, then refund be my premiums. I've never claimed, I, I never died, or the people that are on my policy didn't die. I want my premiums back. And then I have to have the unfortunate task of saying, you know, this is a, it's a lot like car insurance. You know, you pay month per month for cover in that month. And if you don't claim, you don't get to say, well, my my car didn't get stolen or I didn't have an accident, so can I have that premium back because I didn't claim? Um, So there is that feeling and people are just like, well, I paid for nothing, but 
you also didn't die or your loved ones didn't no exactly die. it's you know, a weird it's, it's, thing why it's a grudge purchase it's the one thing you never want to claim on i mean a funeral cover a funeral cover unfortunately you will claim on one day um, but you may pay 20 years worth of premiums which could have covered a thousand funerals and you should be grateful that you never had to claim on that. Well, not that you'll care, but um, the, 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 exactly. You know, no, yeah. it was. It was. Uh, I had such a case. I was going through my inbox because I often get um, <laughs> these emails from people who. So, so this case was. Um, I think her name was uh, Kayleen. That's right. So she emailed me on behalf of her eighty-four-year-old aunt, and like you, Bruce, she done the math. So she had two funeral policies with Metropolitan. Uh, she was, yeah, as a 84 years old, been paying for decades, and the the death benefit was just for 5,000 rand um, for aunt and her uncle, and she worked out that her aunt has paid double the benefit in premiums. So there were two policies; she paid 8,200 odd on the one and 13,000 on the other, and um, she she was quite put out because you know aunt was still living. And now, you know, have to keep paying to get the benefit, but she's paid more. And Metropolitan got back to us, all the emails saying, yes, that's the case. We can confirm that that you've paid, that your aunt has paid this amount and the benefit's only, you know, 5,000 rand on each. But let us clarify some concepts for you. It's a direct marketing funeral policy. There is no retirement benefit. Um, uh, the, the policy has no savings component that can build up a cash value like an endowment or a bank account can, yeah. and therefore they're not to be compared. Um, you know, and we do, basically we, what I was saying. You cover month to month, but exactly, we do have to understand what it is that we're buying, Wendy, and we have to, we really have to understand the T's and C's of everything we buy because the reason why something is cheap. Um, or, or inexpensive um, is because it has a limited benefit and it doesn't go up and, in value yep. every single year. So again, be aware of what you buy and understand the terms and conditions and be happy that you are buying that product and deal with it. Uh, but when yep. when you have a move, and let's go back to where we started, with a big multinational going and saying, terribly sorry, you are the weakest link. We're no longer continuing this for whatever reason. It suits our purposes. We hope that there'd be a little bit more empathy in the process of a, a customer handover. And it would be nice if AIG could collaborate and say, look, you know, we, we have partnered with XYZ Insurance who exactly. says we'll take over our book or whatever the case might be. Uh, exactly. Excellent point. Excellent point. But just a last word on the before we go to news on the um, people must know what they're getting into. Financial literacy is so low, and I do yeah. think the industry could do more to explain, given the demographics of this country and the you Good know, point. that's a mass market property to, to spell out in a very everyday language. Please understand that there is no savings component. If you cancel, you're not going to get your premiums back. That kind of thing. I think. They could do more to educate properly. Wendy has told them they shall do this henceforth. Herein, here. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Tonight, Shapeshifters started her own business uh, with partners. Sam Pockroy, I beg your pardon, Sonari Capital founder and chief executive with us this evening. A brand new private equity firm. It's getting lots of attention. And I wonder, Sam, why you've decided to go and start yet another private equity firm. I thought we were overrun by private equity firms. Hi, Bruce. Uh, yes, I'm actually curious um, uh, to, to correct you right here at the outset and say, uh, there feels very little brand new about what I've been doing. <laughs> I've been uh, started the business ten years ago. What? Uh, we're about to celebrate 
Ah, well, we're about to celebrate our 10-year birthday. Um, and actually, what the way you've introduced this almost comes to the point of, you know, one of the lessons we learned quite early, probably about four years into the business, that in actual fact, um, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So apparently, we're now an overnight success. Um, but in classic style, it neglects to share what most entrepreneurs actually need to know, which is it's long, it's hard. No one sees the hard work that goes in over the years as you're building the business painstakingly. Um, and uh, it suddenly looks like a, a great success. But thank you for that. And uh, I'll still happily answer your question about no, I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I've had the wind okay. taken out of my sails. <laughs> I am deflated and defeated. And I'm going to have a word with some people. Uh, but you have been around then for a decade, which is something obviously I knew, Sam. Um, <laughs> but it is, it feels, is it quite, it, it feels like quite a, a heavily traded space, venture capital. Um, you know, it's, it's, there are lots of big firms and then there are smaller more boutique firms like yours and and it is also a, a, an industry that operates under the radar a lot because it's quite complicated because it's in there for the long haul because it's you know there isn't too much buying and selling an activity going on and so you guys prefer to i think operate under the radar quite a lot of the time i think that's absolutely right i mean first of all there's you know big distinctions as you know between you know, your, your early stage venture capital type of businesses, which as much as we love startups and love, um, uh, early stage businesses, we don't actually invest in that space. Um, that is probably a topic for another occasion. Uh, I think that part of the market was quite a small part of the market where, back when I started in private equity some almost 20 years ago, um, and has, has grown. But you're absolutely right that the private equity market, um, not everyone will know this, but is actually exceptionally mature, particularly in South Africa. In fact, our history in private equity goes all the way back to the 1980s when, you know, private equity was pretty much invented with the good old barbarians at the gate model, um, you know, in, in, in the US. So, um, private equity itself, and particularly in South Africa, is a very mature industry. Um, it does play under the radar, but um, the activity has grown um, and, and the, the impact and sophistication of private equity has grown and changed. And I think to really answer your question, we see an opportunity to, to participate in the evolving, more sophisticated, more um, purpose-driven and impactful side of, of, of private equity and the role that it can play in really transforming um, our economy. So we see we see opportunity to participate in the, the very rapid change that and, and development that has happened in the industry over all of these years. Because so often a VC is seen as a bit like, I'm getting so much trouble, um, but I'm in trouble already, so it's fine. A VC, but, but, but sort of vulture-like. They sort of sit um, on the branches overlooking the desolation that is the JSE, <laughs> the lack of hope and optimism, uh, but they see a five- or seven-year time horizon, and they go, we can we can see opportunity, and we go and we pick out the carcasses of companies, or we go in and we buy vulnerable assets, and then we grow them and we sell them on to buyers um, when, when economic times are better. Um, that is sort of the image that many people have. I don't say that it's true, yeah. not for a moment. Of VC, generally speaking, it's highly opportunistic. Yeah. So you know what? Um, private equity has changed. And listen, I mean, when I first started in private equity, and I would tell my, 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 my friends, family, that I was in private equity, they were like, you know, okay, what is that? I don't know what that is. You know, neither impressed nor particularly, you know, uh, concerned. 
And then, of course, you know, private equity grew in its um, reputation and not in a positive way. So I went from being, you know, not particularly well regarded to then being, you know, oh, you're a shark and, um, uh, you know, part of part of all of this um, uh, negative, like you say, highly opportunistic and very much focused on um, return maximization, often at the expense of growth, often at the expense of um, really the underlying companies. But I must say, and this is not a scenario thing, this is an evolution that private equity has gone through over the last um, 30 or so years, where I would like to say it's because we became much nicer people. Um, but the reality is our returns were no longer delivering alpha. Okay, you couldn't deliver outsized returns based on financial. Explain alpha because so, alpha, sorry, alpha is is a big factor yeah. within within private equity. Alpha males return right. on alpha. Right. I mean, it's traditionally it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a big feature. Quite, somewhat, probably somewhat aligned in there, but no, a somewhat different concept. You know, so basically, investors expect private equity firms, much like they expect many of the investment firms to do. They expect them to do something special that's going to get them a return that's greater than the return that they could get by just doing trading the, the, the market indexes. So in order to do that, we have to do something a little bit special. And especially because private equity, we lock up investor capital for a period of time. It's not liquid. If someone wanted to sell one day, they can't. They have to wait for us to go through our full investment horizon. And for these reasons, it's, you know, the investors say to us, well, we'll only give you our capital if you're going to give us a higher return than what we could get elsewhere. Sure. So private equity is motivated around delivering these outsized returns. And how do you do that? Well, in the early days, we did what was called financial engineering. And that's what you're talking about. You know, it was kind of buying, uh, you know, undervalued assets off the, the JSC and, you know, selling them off in pieces and things like that. But the reality is that model is outdated by some 20 years. Um, really what happened was there was a, a, a demand and a need to do something more with the companies that we invest in. So we invest in, we sit on the boards of these companies, we're involved in the, in the businesses. And what happened was there was a need to show an ability to generate higher returns, which meant we actually had to improve the assets that we mm. were involved in. And so there was a shift to what they then called operational value add. So we did operational value add. And then we got to a period of time, which is probably about 10 to 15 years ago, where even that new strategy, if you wish, built on top of the financial engineering, um, was also not sufficient to deliver these extra investment returns. And that is when I think private equity really started to get interesting. Suddenly, it wasn't about making a good uh, business better. It was actually about literally transforming, reinventing, reinvigorating businesses. And that ties in with the period of time that we find ourselves in now from a, mm. a global business economic universe where the, the pace of change is so incredibly ra uh, rapid that your skill sets required to grow businesses are so much more um, rich and, and, and nuanced that the skill set Frankly, in private equity, along with all of the businesses and, and, and management, you know, trying to tackle the challenges of, you know, digital, you know, innovation and, and technology threats, etc. Um, it really has required a shift in, 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 in the skill set that's necessary mm. for private equity investors to actually generate the investment returns 
that would impress the kind of investors so that we can raise capital. Does it limit your capacity as well, though? Because suddenly you're becoming a lot more involved. Um, it, it's suddenly you're actually going into the office. You're suddenly you're not simply checking in every quarter. You're not simply checking in and going in and firing people and shouting at people and getting Absolutely. people to do things better and jump higher and deliver on your uh, deliver on your on the contract. Otherwise, you're out. We're all out. Everybody dies. Um, which is yeah, the, no. the image that VC has got. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the 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 nature of of the business, and particularly the nature, and I I think this is is broadly speaking, and certainly um, our focus is on a partnership, and we really come in as partners, and you know, our uh, most of the time we are not even the highest bidders for the asset. We look at partnering with 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 um, management to be able to to grow their business. And that involves not just time, but it's actually an a, a, an investment of, you know, our, 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 I would almost say humanity, because we are vested. We have a lot to lose if we don't get it right, um, but a lot to gain together with the, the company, the staff, and all of the stakeholders in the organization if and when we do get it right. So you've been raising capital for many years. You've got uh, you've had some recent capital flows as well. Your goal is to have a $100 million fund. And just to illustrate how hard this is, because as everybody knows, you've been going for 10 years now. You've got, uh, <laughs> you're about halfway there. So we've got, so this is not our first fund. So just for anyone who was considering going into the industry and suddenly was about to change their mind, this is our second fund. Um, This fund will, however, be probably about almost 10 times the size of our first fund. Um, So it does give you a sense of the evolution of our business. Um, We started off uh, really investing in in small uh, uh, companies and you know, with a thesis of growing them uh, to 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 medium size and then to to your mid market and above scale, um, we are now investing slightly higher up in the 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 mid market space. But really, even our our businesses, it's it's very much about extending the growth model. So we are private equity and we invest in established businesses, well established businesses, but always at an inflection point. So where there's growth, right? And the growth is driven by several things. It can be technology and innovation. It can be sectoral growth drivers. It could also be something like generational change in the organization, new management with a new vision. Um, but the, the, the new fund, we're $65 million. We're actually at 1.5 billion, uh, 1.25 billion rand. So much more um, impressive. So much more impressive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah. And I mean, we are, we're, we're well out the gates now. We've got three companies uh, that we've invested in, in this new fund. And, um, uh, we'll be balanced between the, the, the deployment into, into, into these types of businesses and then, uh, looking to raise and close out this fund. And then we progress from there. Um, and look, I mean, and, and the sort of investments that you're making um, are, as you said, driven by purpose, driven by impact. What, and, and also you're an all-female team, as I understand it, as well. Does that change the dynamic within the squad? Once again, I must correct you, Bruce. You no, you need to be no, but, well, maybe, maybe we should be. To, I should be talking to the person who sent me the information about you. Um, <laughs> yes. No, we are not. No, no. Let me correct. Let me let me specify. So we are in our DNA uh, a, a, a business that is focused on diversity and all the wonders of diversity. So at one point in time, we were an all-female team. 
And we used to joke with the market and tell the market that we were working on our, our diversity and that it was very difficult to find good men in private equity. <laughs> but, um, but we did. We worked very hard at it. And we are now, I believe, a 30, maybe even 35% proudly male organization. What? Outrageous. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but you 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 asked the right question. I, I, there is no doubt in my mind that um, the culture of our organisation is defined by the diversity of the people who are in it. Um, we're diverse on on so very many uh, different dimensions, um, and it's something that we're deliberate about not only in our organisation but in all of the organisations that we invest in. And we often get asked, well, doesn't that turn off, you know, investee companies? You know, they don't necessarily want you in there with your business about, you know, transformation, diversity, et cetera, et cetera, impact, ESG, all the rest of it. And I will tell you, I've been so remarkably positively surprised how incumbent status quo, old school organizations hear this and are actually inspired by it and embrace it. And not only in the words when they before they want our money, because that's often when people say yes to everything, um, but our companies have absolutely embraced it and executed on it and grown in their appreciation of the value that it brings. Talking to Sam Pockroy, who is the founder, co-founder and chief executive of Sonari Capital, talking about private equity, talking about venture capital in South Africa as well, talking about a market in which there are many investment opportunities and there's plenty of money seemingly floating about. Pick up on that in just a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. So, Sam, is there lots of uh, venture capital, private equity money floating about? It feels like there is... Uh, a big hunger, especially with changes in pension funds and all sorts of other things, mm. um, that opens the world to to funding of, of really good ideas. Yes, I definitely think there's been a change. There's been a shift, particularly in pension funds in South Africa. Uh, they see it as an opportunity to invest in uh, the real economy, to get closer in terms of the impact that their capital can make on the ground. So we've definitely, we've been really uh, uh, well supported by by local uh, financial institutions and pension funds. And it's one of the advantages of the South African market. We do actually have a sophisticated financial market that's able to 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 do this. So it's definitely growing. Uh, it is, generally speaking, uh, around the world, a very difficult time for capital raising, though. So capital has has fallen off. Um, and uh, so it's 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 typically not that easy. And raising international capital is not always that easy. No, it's not. So where is the capital coming from? It seems to be mostly public sector money. Um, well, public sector to some extent. So, of course, our, our most recent investors um, via uh, the, the GEPF um, managed by the, the PIC, um, but also um, uh, uh, other pension funds and, and, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, we've got the Telcom Retirement Fund, we've got CRF, we've got the National Fund for Municipal Workers um, and uh, various other uh, pension funds that are represented by, um, by financial institutions. So um, it's coming from uh, private and, and, and public sector, but uh, very much has been a local play so far. 
Um, okay, which is I think is good news as well. Talk to me about oh. balance in running a business like this. I, I wonder, and I ask lots of people this question, whether you've got time to do things like read and blow your mind and expand your mind or distract your mind from the everyday pressures <laughs> of, of running a business in a high-pressure environment. I mean, you talk about purpose and impact and all of those very nice things, but you are still going into businesses where, you know, you're seeing the whites of people's eyes. People are very nervous and apprehensive about the current environment. They're worried about the future. Uh, I wonder if you take solace in, in reading or any other such activity. So I love reading. Uh, you're right. I don't get a lot of time to do it and not, not nearly as much as I'd like. Um, it has been, you know, there's been certainly trade-offs that you make, you know, during the course of your career. And I would say that the last 10, 12, uh, 15, I suppose, years of my life has been very much concentrated on building a business and um, and on my children. So, um, yeah, not the hugest amount of time for reading, but, um, but, 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 you know, sneak something in now and then as well. And I, uh, my, Best checking out is probably um, art related, which again I don't get to do a huge amount of, but it's nice to know it's there when when I get a chance. Uh, do you buy proper art? Because I would recently, you know, I've got too much, too many, uh, too much art and too many nice things you collect over time, and you go, you know what? Let's see if we can get any value for this. And then it turns out that I'm a really bad art buyer because um, I, you know, things that are very pretty and very nice and things that look yes. good don't necessarily hold any value whatsoever. Um, and so the, the, the collectibles, the collectibles market is a very different thing. Are you a collector or just a, 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 a gatherer? So my, no, my business partner, Moshmi Patel, she is the curator of anything that might actually have any investment value. I consider myself the curator of when art speaks to me, then, ah, then that's, oh that's, that's the oh connection dear. point. I don't You're think trapped. I've ever tried to even sell any of this. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm no good in terms of advice on that. No, no, that's fine. I'm just checking the, the balance between are you ruthless, as ruthless in your objectives when it comes to buying pieces of art. My goodness me, it's ugly and it's got somebody <laughs> dying in a picture, but I'm going to put it in my lounge because it's worth money. It's good to know oh, that no. there's, there's a balance <laughs> on that particular front. Um, when it comes to business, do you have pet peeves? Do you, Are there things that really bug you? You've been running your own business now for 10 years, plus you've been in private equity for a long time. Are, mm. are there things that you look at in the environment and you go, Geez, I wish I could change that? Look, I think there's a lot of things. And, you know, I probably um, curse more in the office than is, is, is necessarily appropriate. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, that, that the day-to-day pet peeves are there. But I think probably one of the challenges, and I mean, it's, it's what we do. So, you know, it's, I, I must say that it's for my own sins that I have uh, a pet peeve. Um, but really, you know, we, we invest in businesses that are generally founder-run, owner-managed or family-owned businesses. And, you know, I get to say this because I am a founder. We come with baggage. We come with, you know, legacy issues, control issues. Um, we, we, we've got stuff. And what this means is that we're often dealing with, you know, real people stuff. Now, I actually started off in the strangest place for, for private equity. I actually started off in psychology, if you can believe that. It's probably okay. the best place to start, actually. <laughs> best place. I mean, of course, I rebelled. I thought this stuff was way too flaky. Went into corporate finance, became one of the, you know, like you said, those those hardcore shark finance people, only to return to my roots on the people side of things. So, you know, we really do spend an enormous amount of time um, dealing with the psychology side of this. And so my, 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 I don't want to call it a pet peeve because it's actually quite a foundational um, uh, issue that we deal with is really, you know, 
what, what we call slippery people. And we don't really mean slippery as in, you know, unethical people, but just, you know, where you think you've actually convinced someone of something, or you think you've actually managed to achieve a certain change, whether it's in strategy or, you know, a, a accepting a generational change and succession, only to find that the person has slipped back into old habits because it's it's what that person is comfortable with. Yeah. So it's about how to sustain change. Bringing about change is actually not that hard. It's the sustaining of change. And we work with businesses at this very transitional phase. They, they're already well-established. The companies are successful. So, so, But the thing is that what they need to grow to the next level is not necessarily the same set of experience and skills as what got them to this stage. That transition is very difficult. And we just find that, um, you know, how do you, how do you sustain that? And how do you get people to, to really commit at a level that goes beyond the, 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 the saying of it? Um, and, and to actually the owning and doing and, 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 and continuing of it. So that would be probably, um, my biggest, um, peeve. Well, now, next time you meet Sam Pockroy, don't upset her in that particular front. <laughs> she is the founder of Sonari Capital.